0: Welcome back, Cal, and listeners. This is our second episode of Methodical Millions. So, Cal, uh, you said a good point last time about buying your time. You can't buy your time. What would you do if you could?
1: Ooh, that's a very good question. Well, if I can buy back my time, I would use some of it to start investing again, uh, because that obviously would buy me more time for the future. And also, I'd perhaps use some of it to go racing. Racing has been my passion for a very long time. Yeah. So I would love to pursue it further. Yeah, exactly.
0: For the listeners, my most memorable moment of meeting Cal was, I remember we uh, we were sitting next together at the car dealership. And I remember asking you, hey, you like F1 racing? And then I think you talked to me about 20 minutes in a row about F1. And I'm like, wow, this guy's (laughs) really passionate about that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a while. Uh, I've actually done a 24-hour kart race about a month ago. It was last minute. They called me in two days before the race asking me if I wanted to join, and I said yes. So it was a very cool event. Uh, it was an amateur um, team, so obviously there are a lot of professionals there. that have been doing it for years and years, but it was still lots of fun. Uh, it, was, it was a last-minute thing, so I hardly had any practice just the day before the race. And, uh, yeah, I, I really would love to uh, go back to doing it.
0: What was that like
1: in terms of um, a 24-hour
0: race? I've never really been through one of those. Yeah.
1: So we were technically two teams. We were a corporate team and a national team. So a corporate team were representing the company's uh, staff. And the national team were locals, were Bahrainis. <laughs> And basically, I was part of them. So they called me in because they were a guy short. So a friend of mine who knew someone who was there recommended me, and they reached out to me, and I said yes without thinking twice. So I went and met them. A day before the race, we went and had some practice sessions. But within the race itself, it's a 24-hour event. So what happens is first we do a few practice runs. Then we do a three-lap qualifying each. So there were 14 teams, and each team had about six to eight drivers. Some had 10. Basically, what happens is we would all take stints. A stint would be me going on the track, driving for an hour, an hour and a half, then coming back, and then pitting back in. One of my teammates would be ready. they jump into the go-kart, and they would go after that. So, And then they would do an hour, an hour and a half stint, or 30-minute stint, uh, whatever the case might be, whatever they're comfortable with, as long as the pace is there and their, their speed is there. So, and then we keep rotating over 24 hours, uh, trying to, you know, go up the ranks as a whole team. So if we win, for example, we'd win as a team, uh, obviously all of us had to contribute and, and put in the effort. So being amateurs is was first time experience. Again, I don't want to talk during the whole podcast about that race, but, uh, yeah, it was lots of fun, man. And yeah. I'd definitely do it again. Definitely.
0: So so that's awesome. And uh, you said something cool. You're from Bahrain, right? So tell people yeah. what that is. Maybe you can explain for all listeners.
1: Yeah, for sure. So Bahrain, actually, it's pronounced. But Bahrain, it's much easier. It rolls off the tongue. It's a small island. It's a kingdom uh, in the Arabian Gulf. Some call it the Persian Gulf. And basically, uh, it's an Arabic countries and uh, the majority are Muslims there. So um, basically I've been born and raised there my entire life and then I moved to Canada and studied there. I went to university there for three years and then after that I worked in Canada for the longest time actually all the way up until three years ago and John and I worked together. That's how we got to uh, know each other and even after we parted ways, you know, moving on and working with the other companies and I moved on to another field entirely, uh, we stayed in touch.
0: Yeah. Like you said, uh, we just had that same vision, wanting to do better. And that's kind of what this is all about. So I think it's a cool project. We'll see what it turns into. And again, it's mostly for accountability for ourselves to keep ourselves on track, help crystallize our viewpoints and and go back
1: and forth and, and learn, right? That's right. Um, yeah, that's so- right.
0: You had asked earlier what I would do. Um, yeah.
1: What this, would you do with the, with the time? Just
0: Good passion projects. Time. So I grew up really liking music. I would produce more music for fun. Um, always loved that. And it's, you know what? Everything that's a hobby, I think, can turn into something if you have time. And just you kind of lean in and indulge. See where it takes you. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, back to the thing. I really like techie stuff. So I always really admired people that started tech companies. So Um, I mentioned that in the last episode too. Just basically anything from trying to code to, I don't know, online, retail, anything. Like whatever I kind of find interesting, give it a go. And I know people I talk to, they always have a reason why not to do something. But all you got to do sometimes is just try. So I think I would just try a bunch of things in life and and see where it takes me.
1: Yeah, sounds like we're both on the same page. We just try to experience our lives more. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the case with everyone, I'm guessing, right? Everyone has their own passion or their own dreams, if you like, uh, or whatever the case might be that they want to pursue, whether it was even career-wise or, or hobbies or life experiences.
0: Agreed. That's awesome. So you talked a lot about investing in the last episode, maybe explaining what it is. It sounds easy, right? You can just make an account. What does good investing look like? Where does someone start If they don't want to use a lot, what what should they do as a first step?
1: So what I suggest now, again, by no means I consider myself an advisor, but this is what I would personally do. If I were a first-time investor and I would look at companies, and I'm talking again, investing in in the financial markets, right? So there are many ways you can invest your money into something, but I'm talking about putting the money into a stock or into some sort of commodities and, or, or things like that. So I would personally look into the companies that I actually really like. And I like what they're doing. I like their product or their services. Uh, I like where they're headed. I feel that they're stable. And the reason for that is if I would contribute towards a company that I truly believe are going to be there, that I enjoy, that I can support by purchasing their product or their service, then that's a big sign that you believe that this company is going to grow. So for those who don't know, that's the first thing I would recommend is I would suggest you would go and let's let's pick let's pick a company for example, just at random, right? So Disney, for example. So my wife is a big fan of Disney. She loves Disney. She loved Disney as a kid, and she loves what their work, and she enjoys, uh, like, their movies, all of that, right? So, basically, they're known for their theme parks. They're known for their entertainment. It's an entertainment business for them. So, they release a lot of big blockbuster movies, and they've been doing very, very well. So, they truly believe in their product or their services, and again, this is not from an investor point of view, just from a consumer point of view, right? So you say, I really like what Disney's is doing. So I'm going to go and I would say just look into what they have planned in the future, You know how their finances look like. That might be a bit more detailed, but even then, you don't have to go through that. But you can even start buying a small, let's say you have $1,000 that you can afford to put away. So you take that $1,000 and you would buy Disney shares. And then you just let that ride in terms of month after month, year after year. And then you'll see how that develops. Instinctively, you're going to start having interest, right? Be more interested in how they're doing financially, what they're doing. Once the dividends get paid, do they pay quarterly dividends. So that goes into your account. And that's always nice that part of their returns, uh, every quarter they pay a dividend to their shareholders. So if you hold... 100 shares, you get every quarter a certain amount. And that goes to your account, obviously. And then you can either reinvest it, you can withdraw it, whatever the case might be. So that's basically my suggestion. And as you see it grow, you will see how your money starts working for you. You will see that by putting money aside and getting what they call the capital gains, which is basically the the growth of the stock. You buy it at $100, it grows to $110, $120 that's a 10 to 20% return. And then, again, every day that passes by with ups and downs, it'll go up and it'll drop. Over time, a big company like Disney that's rated highly, that's been doing very well for decades, is going to grow higher and higher. Again, nothing is guaranteed in the markets, but that's just my two cents. So basically, how I would recommend it. And that's how I personally got interested at first. I was looking at companies that I felt very comfortable with and put my money there.
0: Awesome. I really like that. That's a clear way of getting someone who knows nothing to start to think about it. So I like that. Um, What about trading? So you seem to be experienced more than most, which if you take someone off the street and they never traded, what would you tell someone like that? Um, you mentioned there was a difference between the two. How would someone get started in that if they want to be a bit more technical?
1: Okay, so basically what I would say is think of it this way, right? So you just finished university, you started working and you saved up some money on the side and then you thought, you know what? I want to buy myself a house, right? So investing would be you going and buying yourself a house knowing that over 10 15, 20 years, generally that house will increase in value because of the land underneath it, because of the property, because of the community around it's growing. So you buy for, let's say, half a million dollars, and in a few years it'll be 600,000 and 700,000 and so on. So that would be investing. You're putting your money towards something. You're not looking at everyday prices and you're thinking that after 20 years, if I want to sell my property, I can actually come out, uh, come out of it with a profit. Now, trading would be you going to buy a house, perhaps something that you want to buy pretty cheap, let's say something that's a bit old, and then you would take that house, renovate it, build it from the ground up again, and then you would want to sell it. So there is no interest for you to stay and live in that house, to use that house, to hold on to that house. And obviously, you would do it at a certain location and a certain time that you believe that the market for that property would grow. So your pure interest is for you to what they call is flipping a house, right? So you'd buy the house and then flip it and sell it perhaps in a very short period of time. Trading and investing are exactly the same with stocks. So you'd invest by buying quote-unquote property and then basically hold on to it for the long term. You don't look at it every day. You don't see the ups and downs of the value going up. If it has a hiccup, if the markets are down, if they have one bad quarter, it's not a big deal. Right? In the long run, the company keeps growing. But with trading, you buy the asset because you think it's at a good price, at a good value. And you're hoping that you'd sell it in the near future for a profit. Now, obviously, I'm talking your future could be within the same day could be within the same week, month, or year. So it depends on which way. But of course, the asset does matter because you do believe it'll appreciate. But at the same time, it's not as important as holding on to the asset. So you're just trying to buy something and sell it once it goes up slightly in value to pocket the profit and move on to the next thing. So for someone who doesn't know anything about trading, that's what it is. You're buying something and then selling it to make a profit. It could be the same as iPhones, right? You buy an iPhone and then for $500. And because you know someone's looking for this model and there's not enough supply, but you got a hold of one and you can sell for 550 or 600 because you have one and you know people who are willing to pay top dollar for it. That's exactly what it is.
0: So if I get that right, you want to make an inference on a play, something that seems – like a good value and try and flip it? And then the goal is to repeat that over and over? Or are you? Yeah. would you maybe repeat it with the same security? Or would you do it with different ones? What would you tell someone who had that question?
1: Uh, it's a good question. I don't think it matters if you do it with the same security or not. As long as you have the right reasons to support you making the decision of actually buying or purchasing and selling the stock or the asset or the security, right? So what happens is, let's say you take one stock and you keep buying and selling and then waiting for it to drop and then buying it again and then selling it as it goes higher. As long as it has the movement, the volatility is important for traders, that is a big contributor to helping you make a profit. Now, again, it sounds a lot easier than it actually is. The success rate is very, very low in the long term for traders. But basically, there's always opportunity there. And that's what us traders like. Uh, I'm more of a trader. But uh, having said that, I do have some investments on the side. So it's always good to have something put aside for the long haul. But day in, day out, I try to capitalize on the opportunities of the movement of the price up and down and it doesn't always have to be trying to make money on the ups and the downs at every single opportunity right i mean sometimes you would miss an opportunity and you shouldn't sweat it you move on because there's always going to be another one somewhere else whether it has to be the same security or not that's not really relevant i think as long as you find something that works for you that's the most important thing
0: yeah that's fascinating. I remember you mentioning something that traders can be in and out of a stock in, in seconds. Is that is that actually true? And do people do that quite regularly?
1: Yes. I had a period where I was actively day trading. And basically, there were instances where I was in and out of a stock in literally one second. Obviously, there are a lot more complicated software for you to do that, and you have to have the correct tools and know-how to know when to enter, when to exit. So it can happen. It's not going to happen a lot, but there are a lot of people that can do it within seconds, and there are a lot of people doing it day in, day out. They get into the market. uh, They're in full cash position. They would trade, and they would end their trading after an hour or two. And they, they end their trading back in full cash position without holding any securities. and they've made one, two, five, ten percent, maybe even 100 percent. you know at some cases. So, so it's definitely doable. There are a lot of people who do it, but there's a lot of risk that comes along with that too, obviously. So it, it is very, very risky. As I mentioned earlier, the success rate is very, very low. Some people say eight to nine out of 10 people who do this fail. the long run. And I'm not talking too long. I'm talking even sometimes a few days or a few weeks or a few months. Yeah. I mean, I've
0: heard a similar stat for entrepreneurship. We've talked about the restaurants. I don't find that necessarily something I'd want to overcome for the sake of it on its own, like just to be in that 10%. But to me, it's like a bigger purpose. So start a company because it's actually helping the world or so when something's that important, you don't listen to the negativity, you don't listen to the, oh, it can't be done. So to me personally, in my life, that's kind of what helps shape my focus and makes me not really latch on to the things that could go wrong. And those are kind of more things on the side. So for me, when I have focus in something, it kind of drives me. And that's when I become obsessed and I kind of spend an abnormal amount of time on something. And to me, that's the secret of getting good. Um, we talked about that before being passionate is fuel, um, is why, what separates people from others. But when it comes to the mechanics of trading, is there certainty in winning and why even bother if so many fail? If it's, if it's almost unclear, like, do you have to be, um, some kind of genius or guru or what's the archetype of person that does well? What can you say about success in trading? Can you actually figure out the game?
1: Uh, I think most have figured it out, but the problem is with actually implementing it. If there's one key to successful trading is that it would be uh, taking your emotions out of the game. And that is so much easier said than done it's almost inevitable that some emotion would be tied up with your decisions because your money is tied up to your trading, right? So it's money that you worked hard for, and it's very difficult to see red and then trying to sell it when you think, okay, I'm going to sell because I think that's the right thing to do as opposed to what most people do is, uh, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold because you don't actually cash in the losses until you sell the asset if it's down, right? So it's emotion, It's uh, just controlling your emotion, taking your emotion completely out of it, having a plan, having a strategy, and basically sticking to that plan and strategy, right? So discipline is basically what I'm saying, and taking your emotions out of it is basically the keys to being successful. Again, I've been doing it for not too long, but just long enough to realize that even if I do this for the next 20 years... There will be times where emotions will be attached and I'll take irrational decisions. And after they're done, I would think, what did I do there? But basically, those are, I think, two of the most important things that a trader should commit to. And that's what most people struggle with. Hence, that's why most people lose. Are there other reasons? Yeah, there are a lot of other reasons that can help or hurt you, but I think If I have to pick a couple of them, those would be it.
0: What does it mean to cut your losses then? Why would someone cut their losses? Or you said um, it's not a loss until you sell. Is there any thought process behind that?
1: Yeah, of course. So basically, you're attempting a trade, right? Not an investment purchase. So you're trading here. So you get into a stock at $50, opening that. Based on the current news and based on the movement of the stock that you think is going to go up to $52, your target is to sell it at $52, right? So you say, I'm going to sell it at $52, make $2 a share, and call it a day. And that's basically what trading is. Now, you have to have a plan that there's no guarantee that stock is going to go up to 52 right? It might hit $51, $51.50. It might actually go down. So what if it goes against you? So the question is, you have to have a backup plan. And a backup plan is basically what it is. is a stop loss. If the stock does not react the way that you expect it to, what do you do? Where do you cut your losses? Where do you end up selling or getting out of the position, even with a loss, but without taking a big hit, right? So let's say an actual ideal profit to loss ratio would be, let's say, 2 to 1, for example. So for every $2 you'd make, you're going to risk $1. So let's say you aim to make $2 on the stock from 50 to 52 Ideally, set a stop loss at $49, which is $1 below your entry price. So if the stock goes down and hits $49, now this is before you even take the trade. You set this rule to yourself. I'm going to sell. You enter at 50 the stock moves up and moves down within the range, and it ends up going down, hits $49, you panic, you think, okay, you know what? It's still moving actively. I still believe it's going to hit $52. I'm going to hold. This is where your emotions came in and stopped you from getting out and cutting your losses. Now, what happens if the stock goes to $48, $47, $45? Now, what happened is you risked $5 per share at $45 for you to potentially make $2. That's not good risk to reward ratio. That's two and a half times loss to one potential one, right? So basically, that's not good trading. You end up selling the stock below your stop loss, and then you ended up losing a lot more than what you even would have made if you actually profited. So that's poor risk management, right? Risk management is very, very important as well. Again, it comes under discipline in this case. So you have to be disciplined. Before you enter the stock, you plan on at what price I'm going to go in, And what price I'm going to put a stop loss for myself. And that will limit you from turning your $10,000 account that you plan on trading with into zero. Because I've heard of stories of people actually blowing up their account in one day, in minutes, because some of them trade more aggressive securities, more riskier stocks, for example. And that could be very, very risky. So, yeah, it's eye opening. And that's why you think. Again, when we're talking about it now, it makes sense. And you think, obviously, that's easy to understand. But when it comes to practice and uh, when you're in the moment, it is very difficult to implement.
0: That sounds really, really cool, actually. Are you saying that by having this type of risk-reward ratio, you can almost game the system or navigate it in such a way that you can actually be in that 10%? Is there something to that? Like, is that a formula you can almost use to do well?
1: Yeah, I do believe that it's all statistically based. It's what are your odds of actually turning a profit? And obviously, when you make a profit, how much you're going to make. And just like pretty much anything you do in life, you're not always going to be a winner. You're always going to take some sort of hit and challenges. That's what I'm trying to say. So let's say that basically you're going to have losses with your wins. You're not going to win every single trade you take. So you have to account for these losses. So let's say if I lose 50% of the time, right? If I lose 50% of the time that I take my trades and I win 50% of the time, but when I win, I make $2. And whenever I lose, I lose only $1. At the end of the day, if you do the math, Right, you basically just end up being ahead, right? So, basically, at a 50 to 50% success rate, you are already ahead, right? So, what you're doing is you just make sure that whenever you win, you make, for example, twice as much as every time you lose, right? So, if you take two weeks, you have 10 days, five of those days you lost $100 each, right? You're down $500. And then the other five days, you made $200 each. So now that's $1,000. So if you take your wins and losses and you end up netting $500 up, right? So you end up netting $500 up. So basically, that's where it comes in. Again, it sounds a lot easier said than done because having a 2-to-1 profit-loss ratio is considered very, very good. Again, those are the technicals of trading for people who are willing to be a bit more aggressive with their money. But again, I don't recommend trading with all the money you have. Again, it's money that you can put aside that can afford to lose that you just work on and help you grow.
0: Well, I find that really, really intriguing, right? And what I I wanted to dig into that a bit. So who picks those risk-reward ratios, as you call it? And how does someone determine how much dollar per share movement on price is uh, sensible and does it matter based on the security? Where does someone actually pick that information out of the sea of stocks? And I remember you got me to download some software and when I open it on desktop, you see all these tickers, all these screens flashing at you. It's like going to an arcade and just a lot of flashing, flashing numbers and lights. So how do you even begin to go through those and say, this is the play. This is what I'm going to do today. Because it sounds like it's very in the moment and Mm -hmm. it's almost as if it's based on momentum. Uh, You're not really, you know, it's not because you love Apple necessarily, but you're looking at other fundamentals. So how do you pick that reward amount, follow with risk?
1: It all comes down to a couple of things. Obviously, the the security that you're trading does have an impact on that because some are a lot more volatile than the others so and obviously it also comes down to how much volume it's been traded the market cap of the company or let's say the the float which is the outstanding shares because that all come into play in terms of how much the stock or the security moves so basically that does come into play in terms of the risk reward ratio obviously i just Use two to one as an example, but it could be one and a quarter to one. It could be one and a half to one. It could be one to one. It could be less than one to one. Let's say it all depends also on your success rate, right? You could make 75 cents for every dollar you lose, but if you are right nine out of 10 times, so you make 75 cents nine times and lose once at one dollar, you're still ahead. You know, it almost doesn't matter as long as you match your profit-loss ratio with the success rate. So basically all of that for you to understand that is where data comes in. Basically trying to log everything, put everything down on a piece of paper or, or your computer or an Excel spreadsheet as I do. I log every single trade that I do. And that comes very helpful in the future when you have a large sample and you'd be able to understand your trading behavior. You can see what you're trading your frequency of success, when you usually call your profits, when you usually cut your losses. And then you can see a pattern there that will really help you understand and maybe help you decide what works for you. Because what works for you doesn't necessarily work for the others. right? So it doesn't necessarily mean this is the one way to do things. But basically, the concept behind it is is the same for most traders right and there are a lot of traders who just basically are taking it as gambling and a lot of people argue that it's like gambling which i'd like to talk about some other time i don't believe it is it's very educated there's a again a risk factor but then again there's with everything we do in life there's risk with everything we do so as long as you're not just throwing your money and hoping that it's going to go green and turn a profit then that would be gambling but otherwise it's not in my opinion
0: it sounds very much like uh, educated guessing, and I would draw the analogy to scaling any business or in any field. There's a lot of unknowns and uncertainties, and you do your best to kind of overcome them and uh, make your way. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. That's uh, that's really fascinating. So, sounds like there is a methodology there. Um, we can go into detail in a future episode. Thanks for sharing. That's really, really amazing. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up with that. There's some there's some glimpse into trading for you from Cal. And uh, yeah. we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Once again, methodicalmillions.com or info at methodicalmillions if you'd like to give us some episode feedback and some comments on uh, future episode requests.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks, Cal.